0: Chapter 3, just above it in the New International Version, it says rules for holy living. I hope that after we, uh, after we hear God's Word and after we discuss Colossians a whole lot more, you'll discover these are not rules at all, but this is our narrative and this is our way of living as people in Christ. Chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me begin with a little self-disclosure. When my wife and I were courting many moons ago, we did so from a distance, You see, I met my wife right at the end of her studies at Calvin College, so six weeks before she left town. She left Grand Rapids, she left town, I stayed, and we were not back within striking distance until I started my internship in Burlington, Ontario, which was about six weeks before we were married. The two years in between those six-week bookends had me in Grand Rapids and my wife teaching at John Knox Christian School in Fruitland, living in Stony Creek. And during those two years apart from one another, besides seeing each other about once every six weeks or so, we wrote many a letter uh, to one another. There was no email and there was no texting in those days. I'm old, I know. And we sent many a cassette tape. You remember what those things were? Little cassette tapes. If you read those letters today, yes, we still have them, and if you were to listen to those tapes today, yes, we still have those too, it would become clear to you that in order for you to fully understand what was going on and to fully understand the various references made, you'd have to understand something of the context in which we were living and something of the world around us. That's always the way it is with things that were written long ago. When you find letters from war times or letters from our grandparents, as we lately have, or whoever, it's helpful to understand something of the context in which they were written and something of the context of the world to which they were sent. Then, if you know something of the context, it helps you understand the references and sometimes the joy or the angst expressed by the writer so it is with the letter to the Colossians. It's helpful for us to know something of the context in which the letter was written in order to understand why it was written as it was and why certain issues were addressed and so forth. And the background to the letter we read from this morning has to do with the reports of a man by the name of Epaphras who came to visit Paul while Paul was in prison. Epaphras was a co-worker of Paul church planter, if you will, in Colossae, and so quite knowledgeable about what was happening in Colossae. And Epaphras told Paul all about the, the kinds of stresses and the pressures that were, put, were on the members of the church, stresses and pressures brought on by the world in which they found themselves. And it was in that context that the apostle wrote this letter of encouragement all the while addressing some of the issues facing the church. And to boil it it down for our purposes this morning, there are basically two major issues or two major pressures facing the members of the Colossian church. One, which was probably the largest one, was a full understanding that Jesus was the only king and the only Lord as described in chapter 1. Jesus was supreme. Now, that's a tough one, especially in the face of a culture and a society that had many gods and in which the face of Caesar was seen everywhere, on money, on banners, on pillars, city gates, doorways, everywhere. Something like what we see every time we see pictures of North Korea. The images of Kim Kim Jong-un are seen everywhere. And like King Kim Jong-un is the undisputed ruler of North Korea, so Caesar was the undisputed ruler of the empire, and everyone owed allegiance to him. He was even considered a god. There was no getting away from his presence and his influence. And remember even the story of when Jesus was being tried. The people shouted, We have no king but Caesar. Jesus our king, that's not the case. And their supposed fake shouts of allegiance to Caesar at that time caused Pilate to hesitate to run afoul of the mob and to run afoul of Caesar. In order to fully understand the context of the letter to the church in Colossae, it's important to understand the place and the power that Caesar had over his empire. There was no hope for you if you ran afoul of his authority his place and his power reflected a perspective and a reality that ancient rome was a man's world one writer put it this way in politics society and the family men held both the power and the purse strings they even decided whether a baby would live or die families were dominated by men at the head of roman family life was the oldest living male called the paterfamilias, or the father of the family. He looked after the family's business affairs and property and could perform religious rites on their behalf. These heads or these fathers of the family had absolute rights over the household and the children. If those children angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or even kill them. And only the head of the family could own property. Now expand that perspective beyond the local family union to the broader empire. The lord of the empire, the undisputed lord of the empire was Caesar. Hail Caesar! And as lord of the empire, Romans lived and died as Caesar's property. Those of you who have watched the film Gladiator will remember how the emperor would give the thumbs down or the thumbs up in the arena. The thumbs up meant the gladiator lived, The thumbs down meant the gladiator died, probably right at that moment. Such was his authority, unquestioned. His subjects were to do were his to do with as he desired. After all, let's not forget he owned them. Scary thought. So that was the first challenge for the members of the Colossian church, the powerful presence of the Roman Empire and everything that came with it. And to stand up against such an empire was sort of taking your life into your own hands. Well, such a powerful cultural challenge is faced by the church in 2019 as well. Let's face it, there's all sorts of gods about vying for our allegiance and for our attention. Gods of sport that take so much time and energy and money. Gods of possessions, having and having and having some more. Gods of leisure and pleasure shouting us that we deserve breaks and shouting us that, by the way, the last break you took was rather low-key, so ramp it up a bit, okay, and keep ramping it up. After all, you deserve it. Gods of computer games and entertainment pulling us away from time with others or with God's people or even the Lord, and so it goes. Cultural challenges to conform and to fit in and accept, to fit in in the world, that, that our, in our world and our culture are strong and they are powerful. And it often seems that we can't see beyond our own culture. It often seems that we don't see much more in our world than the way we do things, thinking that, well, this is the way we live in Canada, in North America. How else would you live? And so we swallow it, and we live accordingly. Like those in Colossae in the Roman Empire, had trouble imagining something other than what they were facing, faced with day in and day out. So it often seems that many of us can't imagine anything different than the culture that surrounds us. And so we drink it in and we capitulate and we just kind of live in it. seems to me that we in 2019 can very easily understand the cultural pressures that faced the Colossians. The question was, and still is, how in the world do we live in this world as a Christian? How do we live as someone who owes allegiance to Him who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Him who is seated at the right hand of God, Him who is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? How do we live in this world with that kind of a confession? In the secularity of the Quebec culture and the increasing secularity of our culture, how do you live as someone whose primary allegiance is not to the culture or not to the country but to the Lord? The indigenous people of this land and the French population of Canada deal with that question all the time on a very different level. It's not a strange question. How does one live in Canada when we pledge allegiance to the crown, to the British crown, when we're not British, we don't see the British crown as the head of our nation at all. We have allegiances elsewhere when they are the victors over us. How do we live in that kind of a society, in that kind of a world? It's not a strange question. Can we imagine anything different than what we are living today? Well, the second pressure or challenge facing the Colossian church was legalism as a response to the question of how does one live in the face of the Roman culture. Pressure came from the Jewish Christians to fulfill the laws of the Torah, dietary laws, feast day laws, circumcision laws, and so on. The message was if you really want to be a Christian, this is what you must do. You must fulfill certain obligations, these rules that are placed above our little scripture passage here. You have to live certain ways and match the expectations of the rest of the crowd. Obedience to the law of God was used as a measuring stick to see whether or not you would fit in. Think about that for a moment. There's really not much freedom in living such a way. Actually, it's deadening. It's not life-giving at all. Again, this is something that many of us can relate to from how we were raised or how we came to know something about the Christian faith. It was expected that we lived in certain ways as families and acted accordingly, and it was expected that we observed the Sunday and that we had various rhythms in life, and if we didn't fit the mold in some way, then we were suspect. Many of us grew up with all kinds of absolutes, Now, there's nothing wrong with healthy rhythms and with spiritual practices, but if those become the ways by which we gain entrance to the kingdom of heaven or by which we are saved, then there's a problem. Legalistic living is not life-giving. There's not much freedom in living such a way. The Christians in Colossae experienced pressure to conform to the patterns of the world and pressure to live according to the Old Testament laws as put forth by the Jews. Which brings us to chapter 3 and to the rest of the book, basically, where it becomes obvious that the apostle challenges all of this. And his challenges to these two pressures and to these two things were such that the Romans would consider it treasonous and the Jews would see it as heresy. But Paul does not hesitate to proclaim a total countercultural approach to the life and the world in which the Colossians found themselves. And this countercultural, subversive, even approach was all based on what Jesus did. It was, and even today, is all based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That death. That resurrection, that ascension makes all the difference in the world. Paul wrote in Romans 6, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we were united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection bring freedom and bring and place believers in a very different place and under the rule and the authority and the freedom and the delight of a new kingdom. Jesus' death and resurrection give God's people, as we already heard this morning, a new identity. We sang about it earlier in a song that I wish I had learned when I was a kid. I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to to you, Lord Christ, my Lord. The Colossians needed to understand, and so do, do we. We need to think about this reality. I'm not owned by Caesar. I'm not owned by computer programs. I'm not owned by a team. The other night watching football, property of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Really? That's terrible. Someone would be the property of a team. I'm not the property of an organization, or a family, or a husband, or a spouse, or a parent, or a country, or a business, or money, or anything else. But as a child of the Lord, I am owned by none other than Jesus Christ with whom I died and with whom I was raised to newness of life. This speaks volumes, not about living under rules of a dictator or an empire, not about legalism, but it speaks volumes about a new identity, a new narrative, a new relationship with Jesus. Jesus. And this dying and rising with Christ is so beautifully pictured in the sacrament of baptism. We witnessed it again this morning, albeit by sprinkling and so perhaps not as dramatic and easy to understand, but baptism speaks about dying and rising with Christ. It talks about washing and being made clean. It speaks about one not being one's own, but belonging to Jesus. Two weeks ago, five of us from this congregation were not in church here that Sunday morning because we were wrapping up our discovery and learning trip to Montreal. And on that Sunday morning, we joined a congregation who usually meets in a theater in downtown Montreal, but this Sunday morning, they were meeting on the newly minted Verdun Beach. They were gathered there for a baptism, the baptism of Maud, a new Christian Exciting, especially amidst the secularity of Quebec. Much of the church in Quebec is alive because of immigrants to the province, but Maude was a dyed-in-the-wool Quebecois. Praise the Lord. The Spirit is working. And to show their excitement that she had come to know the Lord, they gathered by the river. So while the congregation gathered on the shore, and here's a couple of pictures to show that indeed we were there. There's Larry, our own Larry. Next one, there's my wife, and there's Melody standing amidst the crowd. So you see, we were actually there, right? We were on that beach, yeah. <laughs> and this is what it looked like. because Those were all congregational members sitting on the beach. And while they were sitting there, while they were gathered on the shore, Maud, along with the pastor and someone else, waded out into the St. Lawrence River on the south shore of the island of Montreal, and here they are preparing for the baptism. There they are. That's Maud in the center. They're prepared, and they spoke to her there, and they prayed with her there, and then at a certain point, Maud was put under the water. Hold it there. Think about this for a minute. Paul writes in Colossians 3.3, 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In this picture, you actually see the pastor, Norton, the gentleman on the right, that's right, and, and his uh, counterpart. Maude is gone. Wow. Well, she's gone. She's underwater. She's dead. She's buried, so to speak. She's totally gone. Actually, the most wonderful way that this would work is if they would just have her all the way down and they would walk away and she'd be gone, like just gone, dead, in the tomb, gone for a while. It's an image of Jesus dying and going into the tomb. No trace of him. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. A few moments later, Maude reappeared. As you can see, she's alive. She was there, she was gone, she rose again. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture of dying and rising with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. Like Jesus died, so we die to sin. Like Jesus rose, so we too are raised to new life in Him. That's exciting, and to show their appreciation, a loud cheer went up from the congregation and all those who were gathered on the bank on the beach it was a special moment for all and it was kind of cool for us to be there and to see that but it doesn't end there it doesn't end there we may come to know Christ and be baptized and be part of the church but there is more to it the very issues raised by the world in which Coloss in which the Colossians lived have to be addressed And so what are the implications of belonging to Jesus? Because there are implications. Colossians 3, 1, 2, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your minds, hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Some of you who are hearing that might suggest that figures. There's that typical religious kind of talk. This is all too heavenly, too far removed from reality. This is of no earthly good. That's a challenge that Christians, Christians hear all the time. The implications are merely heavy, heavenly, and it's accentuated by verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with him in glory. See, this is all about the great by and by. And then, when you add to that the statements that follow in the verses, that, you know, statements with references to sexuality and the body, which are seemingly bad, so please don't play around with it, then the thought may be to dismiss Paul's writing because it doesn't speak to, ver- to us very much these days. It's all about heaven and it's about a far removed reality, but nothing could be farther from the truth. This is very practical and earthly. Remember what Jesus was like after his resurrection? He ate fish. He had scars in his hands, in his side, in his feet. He walked and he talked with his disciples. He was real flesh and blood. He was not a ghost but a physical being, a prototype for our resurrected bodies. Christianity is earthy and real and physical and involved in our everyday lives. Once the people in Colossae understood that they were raised with Christ, that meant to them that they were no longer Caesar's property. yes, they had to obey him as the ruler of the land, but they didn't belong to him. He didn't own them. They belonged to Jesus, and they were in a relationship with him. They now belong to the kingdom of heaven over which Jesus is the king, the one seated on the right hand of the Father. Now that Maud has been raised with Christ, her life is to be different. It has to be. It's going to be tough in a secular culture like Quebec, but it has to be different. For those of us who confess Jesus, our lives are to be different as well. Eugene Peterson puts these verses like this in the message. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue things, the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with all the things right in front of you. And I'd almost want to say, knock it off and add it to that. But look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from His perspective. When we truly understand this, this is going to mean a rejigging of our imaginations, as yes, the new has not yet come in all its fullness. That is to say, if all things are not perfect as yet because Jesus has not returned as yet. But Christians are called to live in the present as the people they will become when Christ returns. And so the lives that we live are to reflect our relationship with the Lord Jesus. The narrative of our life ought to reflect the narrative of the kingdom of God in us and through us. People ought to come to understand what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And so we ought to put to death whatever doesn't belong to kingdom living. And we ought to live inclusively and without hierarchy, as the rest of this chapter says. After all, Christ is all and is in all. And then Paul goes through a whole list, not an exclusive list, an exhaustive list, and we'll look at it a whole lot more in the weeks to come, of things that one ought to keep in mind <clears throat> as they live out of the resurrection of Jesus. Love, unity, compassion, and thanksgiving are many of the virtues and the characteristics that were so contrary to the world in which the Colossians lived. We died. And we're raised with Christ. We belong to him and to no one else. That has consequences, major consequences. Now we see but a poor reflection. Then we shall see face to face when Christ, who is our life, appears. Then we shall also appear with him in glory. That's God's promise to us. That's our unshakable promise hope. To him be the glory. Amen. O Lord, what a promise. What a hope. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to rejig our imaginations, as it were. That you would help us to not look down and see the things around us and just swallow them and go that way, but to look up. And live our life according to him who sits at the right hand of the Father. We thank you, O Lord, that you have called us out of darkness into your light. That we have died with you, but have been raised with you in newness of life. To you be the glory for that incredible gift. Help us to understand what that means in our culture and in our world. And we pray, O Lord, for the guidance of your Holy Spirit and the encouragement of fellow believers as we walk that path to the day when all things will be made new. To you be the glory. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.